Our guest on the programme today shot to fame in 1966 with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Followed that with the intellectual comedies Jumpers and Travesties, which fanned critical accolades for their wit and scholarship. His 1982 play The Real Thing was a more rounded and emotional theatrical experience. Since then, the dazzling Arcadia, and then there was the minor matter of an Oscar for his Shakespeare in Love with uh, a lot more, of course, in between and since. It's not possible to capture or catalogue his 40-year career in 40 seconds. Tom Stoppard, you are very welcome indeed to Rattlebag. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Just to clear up something, first of all, what is or was your first mother tongue? My first mother tongue was Czech, and I certainly spoke it to my mother insofar as I could speak anything up to the age of three or four. The first school I went to was an English-speaking school. So my mother tongue began to disappear when I was very young indeed. By the time I came to England, I knew just a few words of Czech. So therefore, what do you make of the, the fashionable theory that your linguistic virtuosity is based on the fact that English is not actually your mother tongue? I don't think there's much in that. Casting no aspersions on my brother's articulate command of vocabulary, he doesn't, you know, get credited (laughs) with the same degree of English-speaking versatility. I think it's more to do with one's temperament and taste and that kind of thing, Maybe, maybe some conditioning. I think it's got nothing to do with where I was born. Now, the first years of your life were traumatic. You seem oddly uninterested in those very first couple of years in literary terms. First couple of years? You mean before I left Czechoslovakia? Well, when you left Czechoslovakia and then uh, Singapore and the, 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 the death of your father and I, I mean, they were, they were very yes. interesting, traumatic, but you, ha- you haven't used them is what I'm saying, really. Well, broadly speaking, I haven't used my life at all. I've used a degree of self-reference as regards my intellectual life, if that's not too high-flown a phrase for it. In other words, in my plays, I'm, I'm often a spokesman for myself. But as regards the narrative of autobiography, I've used little or nothing. I did write a play about journalism and There was a young reporter there who spoke for me in a certain sense. But you're right, I haven't used the most important or the most dramatic or the most emotional facts of my own biography. It's not a policy, it must be a temperament. And have you begun to explore those earlier, not necessarily for use in your art, but just out of your own curiosity? I've often thought of writing a play about my own life if I had gone back to Czechoslovakia at the age of eight instead of coming to England, especially since uh, Václav Havel, whom I knew quite a little bit, was a playwright, as you know, and sometimes I was intrigued by the idea of the the road not taken, the the parallel life which I didn't live. But it's... uh, a kind of conceit, really. I pretended to be interested in writing a play about it. I occasionally still pretend to myself that I'm interested in writing a play about that. You spent some of your early years in India. I think that was an experience you you very much enjoyed, wasn't it? Yes. 
I tend to remember the good things and the nice things, the pleasant times. And India, in, in my memory, is a kind of halcyon childhood. It couldn't have been entirely. I'm sure I must have been as miserable on some days as all children are. But I, but I remember India as being a carefree time of my life. In spite of the fact that it ended with the death of my father back in Singapore. I mean, he died, of course, much earlier, soon after the Japanese arrived in Singapore, but we didn't know that until after the war. And I remember when I was told about my father's death, I still recall now how it didn't make the impression upon me that it ought to have made. I uh, left Singapore in early 42, and um, three years later, I suppose, of course, I remembered my father, but rather dimly. Even now, most of my memory of him consists of those little decalaged, decalaged sepia photographs from before the war. But I've been back to the town where I was born a couple of times in recent years, and being back there and seeing the little brick house in which my mother and father were first married, all that moved me much, much more than the photographs. Then, then the photographs became much more potent. I think when you were about eight or nine, you moved then to Britain with your stepfather and your mother, and you became effectively a middle-class English boy. Did, did you, given what had happened before that, did you take to it quickly? Did you take to it slowly? I don't think you particularly took to your schooling, for example. But I adopted all the values pretty quickly, Yes, I went to a prep school, and uh, that was in '47. My friends were prep school boys. The school was in the Derbyshire countryside when I first went to it. It had been evacuated during the war. And it was in a beautiful place. It was a shabby old country house. And I think that my sense of what England was was almost defined by the first year of my life in England, which was by no means lived in a typical England. But uh, when I went back there as an adult, I, to the school itself and to the area around it, the feeling was very powerful. It was a nostalgia, not just for the landscape, but for that long-dead time of innocence and not only was England a very different place then, but one's illusions were different. You know, the illusion of what England actually was had undergone many, um, strip, much stripping away of the layers. I think I look back much more than I look forward and always have done. It may be an aspect of a kind of romanticism, looking back at an age of innocence in a innocent time in an innocent landscape and uh, I miss it actually in a particular way that's that's to say that I still think of it as being a better place I think your stepfather thought that one of the greatest gifts he had given you was the gift of Englishness it sounds like you would agree with that well he certainly thought that and I uh, grew up thinking something very like that of course you know, at the age I've got to, one has a much more dispassionate view of the past, possibly. I didn't live a sheltered life, but possibly I lived quite a, a narrow life, a life within quite narrow confines of boarding school and then holidays from school. And we lived in a 
series of of small houses in different parts of the country as my father's job moved him around. But it wasn't until I joined the local newspaper after leaving school that I encountered a much broader face of England. I got around more, met different kinds of people for the first time. I think I was a late starter in life, generally. Because it's extraordinary for somebody of your erudition that you chose not to go to college. Why was that? You wanted, as you seemed to want to get into the world of work, to get into the world of journalism very quickly. I don't think of myself as being a, <clears throat> a particularly erudite person. Uh, I certainly was not a highly academic child. I was impatient with uh, the school I was at. I went back to that school not so long ago. Of course, it's a very different place, a much more liberal place. Um, I remember my school days there as being quite cold and uh, cramped and much supervised. And I wasn't particularly keen to continue my education, if that's what education was going to be like. And also, I wanted to, I wanted to start earning my own money, really, just to try and get some independence and not have to wait another three or four years. Once the idea of journalism had occurred at all, it really bit me. I didn't go into journalism thinking, well, I've got to do something, and I like writing school essays, maybe I could be a reporter. It wasn't that at all. I, uh, it, it bit me in a different way. I loved the idea of being a journalist, and as a matter of fact, continued to love it all the time I was doing it. Is it true that as a journalist that you cut and pasted an interview with Harold Pinter that didn't actually take place? No, actually, it's not true, but I think I know what you're referring to. He came and gave a talk at a theatre festival in Bristol where I was working, and um, I scrupulously um, reported his exact words uh, and turned it into, as it were, a long piece by Harold. But I didn't purport to have sat down and interviewed him. Now, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in 1966 was your first great success. It, it wasn't all that well received, I think, though, at the very, very start, was it? The very start was a student production at the Edinburgh Festival in 1966. And some people didn't get it at all, and some people seemed to like it a lot. But yes, it, 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 it wasn't one of those festival productions which, which took the town and caught the attention of the Edinburgh Fringe, even though in those days there wasn't that much fringe to Edinburgh, not like nowadays. What changed things, really, was probably just one single newspaper review in The Observer. The critic of The Observer wrote about it in a way which made Kenneth Tynan at the National Theatre ask to see it, to read it. And um, when the play was produced the following year, it was lucky it got a very good production, a handsome production. The play worked pretty well and um, was warmly embraced. Do you want to play questions? How do you play that? You have to ask questions. Statement one, love. Cheating. How? I hadn't started yet. Statement two, love. Are you counting that? What? Are you counting that? Foul, no repetition. Three, love, in game. 
it's a highly original play, but if, if there was a template for it, would it be as much Waiting for Godot as Hamlet? Um, yes, uh, but Hamlet was more more of a template using that particular term. Um, Beckett was quite clearly a very strong influence on it. Inescapably, a play in which two men who are close but argumentative and sort of slightly irritate each other and have nothing to do except speculate about their future and their past and their surroundings inescapably uh, that's going to smell of waiting for Godot and I was quite happy for it to stink to high heaven of waiting for Godot You then subsequently many years later directed the, the film version yourself uh, was, that, did you, was that a duck to water situation or was it something that you found difficult actually directing, fil- directing films? Um, it, was, it was difficult but very enjoyable but I had a lot of help and the smartest thing I did was not to pretend I knew how to do it So I had um, very good people around me and I must say that it was one of the most purely enjoyable things I've ever been involved in. Looking at the film now, I'd like to take 10 minutes out of it and so on. In fact, I'm going to, I think, we're going to do a DVD. It could be the only director's cut, which is shorter than the producer's. <laughs> I think your producer at the time when the filming was going on was a little bit concerned about the fact that the camera wasn't moving around all that much. Uh, you only know that because I tell everybody. Yeah, he said to me one day, you're not moving the camera much, are you? And I thought, good God, I'm not moving it at all. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> After Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, subsequent successes like Jumpers and Travesies, they were dazzlingly witty, they were highly intellectual. In retrospect, were they perhaps too entertaining in terms of your critical status? Uh, No. They may have been too something or other, but I believe in things being... I'm not sure you can be too entertaining. Um, But, I mean, if you're too entertaining, in a sense, you're not taken seriously. Well, I suppose you mean entertaining in a rather sort of lightweight way, and that there may be, maybe so. In a curious sense, which is at the same time obvious to everybody, and yet never seems to occur to anybody, you don't really plan to write the plays you write in the way you write them. The, 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 the finished play isn't the product of a principle or program. You somehow write the play that you can write and not any other kind of play. So whether it turns out to be too lightweight or too heavyweight becomes really an afterthought, a retrospective thought, a side issue, really. And I think that the the play is an expression of the playwright. I believe you can't get away from that. It's It's quite hard to write a play, and the only way you can do it is to be very enthusiastic and be fired up about it to have a lot of kind of momentum coming out of yourself. And that's really indistinguishable from writing honestly. I don't think you can, you can get the momentum if you're standing to one side of yourself trying to figure out what kind of play would go down best at this particular point in your career. It's no good at all. And I, I'm quite happy to accept the effect that the plays make, which is roughly speaking, that that I'm a serious, deeply serious person, compromised by a wide streak of frivolity. 
that's the best light I can put upon myself because the other one would be that I'm a deeply frivolous person, <laughs> just slightly <laughs> redeemed by a serious streak. Now, you had a certain celebrity status in the, in the 60s as a consequence of Rosencrantz and Gillenson and, and in, the, in the early 70s, and there were comparisons to Oscar Wilde. There was a certain sort of physical resemblance as well. Were you at any stage tempted by the 60s to put your genius into your life rather than into your work? I'm, I'm sure that that's a matter of um, temperament again. You know, you, I think I would have felt very uncomfortable. I sometimes did feel uncomfortable on the few occasions where... I'd try and live a certain kind of life because it was there to be lived. But um, I got married in 65, I think. No, 66, maybe. I was in Germany for quite a lot of 64. And I suppose I should have been very much part of the 60s from 62 onwards when I moved to London. I worked on a magazine. I was a sort of freelance on a arts magazine and I remember one of the guys coming in one day with a glossy 5 by 8 of the Beatles and explaining that they were going to be the next important group as we called them then I remember that very clearly I'm not sure to, to what extent I took proper advantage of, I'm quite a timid person I wasn't brave and I wasn't up for dangerous experiences didn't do drugs, and I lived quietly. I worked pretty hard. I was, I was quietly ambitious. I think I really, I, I really did work. I, I, I think I realised quite early on that it wouldn't. It's not going to happen unless you, the pen is actually in your hand. You know, this is still true. By the way, working on anything now, the notion, the tempting notion that you will take a giant stride forward if you actually just go out and walk around for a while or, you know, go into town and think about things. In fact, the creative process comes to a stop, as far as I can tell, until you're back there with everything shut off and shut down and the paper in front of you. Um, I mention that only because my recollection of the 60s is that... Um, I was working most of the time. I didn't, you didn't need that much money to live, but I had no other resources but the money I earned. And I was a very, very unimportant freelance journalist who occasionally had something put on somewhere. I think I had, I think I had a couple of very short radio plays on in 1962 or some such time. So it was very hand-to-mouth. You suffered the jibes of being described as things like the tin man of theatre, all brain and no heart. Was the real thing, in any sense, an attempt to, to shrug off that mantle? No, but it did to some extent. Um, I'm so grateful if an idea for a play occurs to me at all, so I can't afford to be choosy about what kind of play I ought to be writing. I don't have, never have had, a bottom drawer of good unwritten plays just waiting for me to get to them um, every time I finish something I've got nothing but there's something in what you say because, because by the time I got to, to doing the real thing which I suppose I, I suppose I was writing it in 1981 82 you know I'd been I'd been around for 10 years or more and was less shy I suppose about putting myself my thoughts my emotions onto a stage. It's an odd thing to talk
talk about, really. It's an odd thing to acknowledge in oneself. But it's a lot to do with the kind of... I'm sure it's a lot to do with the kind of upbringing you have. We weren't a family, neither my Czech family, of course. I only remember my Czech family in the context of India, where it was simply my mother and my brother and, and me. And then my, as it were, English family, when, when my stepfather brought us to England. Uh, our families... Uh, I remember I was, very, I was very interested and slightly envious of the families of other children. Occasionally, I would go and visit a friend of mine from school, maybe spend two or three days in somebody's house... I can, remember, I can think of one particular family now. They were so, um, I don't know, relaxed and open and untidy and oh, they were reciprocally critical of each other in an amusing way and the children were treated like grown-ups. It was so unlike any, any childhood of my own um, that I was aware then, if not before, that I was brought up in a way which which uh, made me inhibited and somewhat intimidated. I had no kind of to-hell-with-it attitude. There was a lot of what would the neighbours think at home, and I think possibly, especially in those days, there was a fair degree of what would the neighbours think at school as well. So probably that's the kind of start which you never quite outrun, even now, I'm sure it still marks me. I'm not saying it's all bad. It may have saved me from interesting excesses, for all I know. But I do recognize that in myself, that I was um, quite, in, quite inhibited about confronting life. There was a question somewhere at the beginning of this. Well, perhaps Randall, I can com- come back to the question by way of the main <laughs> character in The Real Thing, Henry. He's a writer. He's going through marital difficulties. You said at the beginning that you don't use your life in your plays, and that's something that uh, you know anybody who reads your plays would acknowledge, that it's, it's yes. informed by your intelligence rather than necessarily by your experience. But would The Real Thing be something of an exception? Would there be more of an autobiographical element? Would Henry be the closest of your characters, shall we say, that you've ever written to you yourself? There's a lot of closeness. I mean, the plot is the plot. You have to invent that. But um, almost every aspect of Henry, whether he's talking about Desert Island Discs or love would be closer to me than any character in any play I've previously written, I guess. Or at least closer in a more obvious sense. The trouble is I don't like the pop music it's all right to like. You can have a bit of Pink Floyd shoved in between your symphonies and your Dame Janet Baker. That shows a refreshing breadth of taste, or at least a refreshing candor. But I like Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders doing um, 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 um. Doing what? That's the title. Um... Um, 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 um. I like Neil Sedaka. Do you remember O'Carroll? For God's sake. Yes, I'm not very up to date. I like Herman's Hermits and the Hollies, the Everly Brothers and Brenda Lee and the Supremes. I don't mean everything they did. I don't like artists. I like singles. This is sheer pretension. No, it moves me the way people are supposed to be moved by real music. 
Now, I was taken to Covent Garden once to hear a woman called Callus in a sort of foreign musical with no dancing, which people were donating kidneys to get tickets for. The idea was that I would be cured of my strange disability, as though the place were a kind of lures for the musically disadvantaged. My illness at the time took the form of believing the Righteous Brothers recording of You've Lost That Loving Feeling on the London label was the most haunting, the most deeply moving noise ever produced by the human spirit, and this female vocalist person was going to put me right. No good. Not even close. The woman would have a job getting into the top 30 if she was hyped. You preferred the brothers. I did. Do you think there's something wrong with me? Yes, I'd say you were a moron. What can I do? There's nothing you can. I mean about Desert Island Discs. Uh, I'm not self-analytical, so, and also I don't think it would be a terribly interesting thing to pursue the possibility that on some other level I'm, I reveal much more of myself in, for the sake of argument, Guildenstern. That kind of line of inquiry makes me yawn my head off, really. But as regards conscious self-knowledge, yes, I mean... There's this playwright of roughly my age spouting off on things I roughly spout off on, about myself, or did, yes. In Arcadia, one of the characters, Hannah, says, it's wanting to know that, that makes us matter. Is that a stopguard opinion slipping in, Probably. that you want to know? Probably. I, I think that curiosity about the world around us and how we fit into it is part of the motor which makes us put one foot in front of the other, you know, whether it's down the garden path or on the moon. I think the forward motion of society, where you can deem it to be a beneficent one, is very much to do with not being satisfied with the knowledge we have. That's a pretty trite observation, actually, on my part. I mean, one easily sees that it can mean anything from why Columbus crossed the ocean to, you know, why one might explore this subject in a play. Yes, she says, what's she say? The need to know is what matters. Mm. It's wanting to know that makes us matter. Yes. Because you, I mean, you do pack a lot of learning, knowledge, I'll use the word erudition again, into your plays. You've also said that we shed as we pick up. Do you, do you make a study of certain topics, become fascinated by them, perhaps even obsessed by them, and then jettison that information when you move on to your next play, or do, do you retain it forever and always? I'm afraid that I let it go, not because I want to, but I, I, I do. I'm, I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm constantly being overestimated um, as an authority on this subject or that subject because I've written about it. And it's true that for short periods of my life I become intensely interested and I know a fair bit about various things for those periods when I'm working with them. But I'm quite pragmatic and I move on and perhaps less and less so, am I capable of retaining everything anyway? But people always ask me to get involved in things which are somehow to do with the last play I wrote. And it's no good because by that time I've moved on and I'm obsessed with something else. Are you less prone in more recent plays, in more recent writing, to that sort of virtuosity? Has it, has it been beaten out of you in a sense by the too clever by half jibes? Well, I don't think I'm clever enough, actually. I mean, no. Uh, no, as a matter of fact, my current 
sense of myself, and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, is that most plays aren't worth writing, so I'm not going to write them. That's really unfair, because I like to go to see a lot of plays which I wouldn't want to write. So these are two different criteria. But I'm, I'm not writing a play at the moment, and I would be if I had something that I had got hold of or something had seized me. I'd be writing that now. You know, I've come from a rehearsal of a translation, which I, I did because I had not, nothing of my own. And I think that I'm surrounded by plays which require no justification, you know, good entertaining theatre which takes you somewhere for a couple of hours, little plots, little events, domestic or otherwise, and it's nicely done and then you go home and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them, I like them, but I don't want to write anything like that, I don't know why. I want to somehow combine theatricality with uh, any kind of complex subject. It doesn't have to be a big subject, but it could be a big subject, but something which, which is in some way difficult to explore and worth exploring. It might be a, a social or historical or a philosophical or it could be mathematical. I mean, I don't know. Um, but um, years and years ago, I, used, I had sort of one or two tiny ideas. I thought, one day I can just do this one, you know. And, uh, I remember teasing a friend of mine, a director, and saying, no, we'll do it next year. We'll do this play about the Quins or the Sextuplets, all played by one actor. And we'd, have, we'd, have, we'd plan how this play would work and how this one actor would appear. And I used to have sort of wonderful ideas, which I really shouldn't confide to you, because some, I might want them <laughs> back one day. But I thought it'd be great if, if maybe, maybe I could have a, 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 a sort of football team so that although the actor, although they all look identical because they are identical, they would have different numbers on them. That would be very convenient for the audience if their bodies had large numbers on them. And I thought, well, there could be a football team. So we kept talking about this, this woman who had 11 children. <laughs> and, and we'd have them all numbered so the audience could keep track on which one was in love with her and which one was just out of jail and which one, whatever. So this is a long digression into nothing very much. But what I mean is, um, in some rather silly way, uh, I never actually get down to that. I'm waiting for the play about... I'm waiting for a way of dealing with... I'm, I'm not going to say what, because that would be pretentious, but there are two or three areas uh, in life and politics which I would like to write about, and I don't think I can do that by larking about... That's what it is. That's what it is. At the moment, I just don't want to write a play which is just me larking about. Is this in any sense the dilemma of the playwright who chooses not to put himself or his, well, put his life, if you like, into his plays? I think it could be true of one who does and one who doesn't. No, I think that it's the dilemma of somebody who um, has always had very great difficulty in coming up with a plot. I'm not, I'm not a plotty kind of writer. I have written plays which in the end, of course, have a plot, but my God, it's agony trying to make the plot thing work. Um, because I, I never have 
a, a plot or a narrative or a set of characters um, to start with. I'm always starting off wanting to write about something which is so abstract that there are no human beings involved in it. There's no place, there's no time. It, it's something which is just an idea. If I had a nimble mind, nimble for constructing excellent plots and toys, I'd probably have a good time writing quite a lot. As things turn out, I seem to write a play about every four years, which frankly is not, I don't call that prolific. In political terms, you, you never committed to the left, which a lot of playwrights in this country have done. How does that affect your relationship with peers like David Hare and Harold Pinter, for example? Well, it never really comes up when I meet them, so you'd have to ask them. I don't, I don't have that kind of friendship. I mean, what I suppose I'm saying is that I have friendships rather than alliances. No, I've, 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 I've never gone for the sort of block vote. Or the, I've never gone for the package deal. You know, these are left-wing yeses and these are left-wing no-nos. Never gone for that. I, I don't even think of myself as being left or right. There seem to be... There seem to be political and moral questions which don't divide up so neatly. And perhaps I've just sort of run scared from having to, and from having to really understand what I'm talking about there. I've never or seldom directly engaged in something unless, to me, the issues are starkly clear. I mean, I did a couple of things, uh, you know, about Russia or Eastern Europe mm. at a time when... All those issues seem to me completely clear. I'm just curious about that because uh, you were talking about things like every good boy deserves favour or professional foul. Uh, was, did that arise out of your own origins, if you like? Was that something to do with uh, you, those origins or was it simply to do with a, a distaste for the crushing of dissent and for censorship? The latter. I was given the opportunity to to write something which would have the service of a symphony orchestra. Every good boy deserves favour. Um, and it took me a long time to think of how to use the opportunity. And But at that period, I was involved, you know, as, so far as English writers can get deeply involved, in issues of not... Russian dissidents as a whole, but the particular issue of of dissidents being placed in psychiatric hospitals. Um, you know, I, I I knew quite a lot about it, and I, so I went there and so on. <clears throat> and uh, but if you're saying, was I casting back into my own Eastern European origins? The answer is not no, not as far as, as, far as I'm aware, not at all. Your attention, please. Who's that? Welcome. Nobody's Welcome. the author. We are about to embark on a great voyage. It is customary to make a little speech on the first day. It does no harm. Authors like it. You want to know what parts you are to receive? All will be settled as we go. I'll do it. Now, listen to me, you dregs. Actors are ten a penny. And I, Hugh Fenneman, hold your nuts in my hand. You won the Oscar for the Shakespeare in Love screenplay, but is your film work of lesser importance to you than your theatre work? Well, by definition, because I've never written an original film, all my theatre work is 
my own. It comes from me, and, and that's that. Um, but all the films I've written have been based on somebody else's work. Usually, quite often, I've been fortunate enough. Um, the work of very good novelists, Dr. O, Nabokov, J.G. Ballard. But there's no question about it. Uh, I'm there to serve another master. And, of course, the director is part of that, too. But I'm there to serve a writer who's written a novel, for example. I'm there to serve a director who wants to make a particular kind of film. So it's in no sense a continuation of my life as a theatre writer. It's quite separate. I have to ask you, where do you keep the Oscar? Oh, I keep the Oscar on top of a bookshelf uh, to stop books falling over. <laughs> what a fate for well above eye level, I might say. Um, finally, do you have any intention of slowing down, or are you always going to be in pursuit of one more masterpiece? Um, I'm, I think I'll slow down, but the pursuit will continue. Well, you, 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 can't, you can't improve on, on Beckett's fail better. In my case, pursue slower might be where I end up. Tom Stopper, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And that's it from our Rattlebag special from London today. The programme today was produced by Kevin Reynolds. From all of us on Rattlebag, bye-bye.